0: Well, this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Hebrews, but before we turn there, um, I have to make a little bit of an announcement here that that is not fun. I'd rather erase it, but you know the job of a pastor is that we, we are called to um, protect the flock. We're called to uh, say hard things and do hard things when it comes to the truth of the gospel. And so I, I just have to make this announcement because we did promote this early on, and I um, I'm sad to have to mention, uh, it breaks my heart to have to mention that we're going to have to be pulling out um, as, as a church from our support for the Salvation Army this year and the bell ringing. And, uh, and now I realize that many of you signed up and, and this is not something I'm forcing upon you. I think you need to pray about commitments you've made and, and determine uh, what's best between you and the Lord in regards to your involvement. But uh, from a personal and pastoral level uh, based on some things that they came out with this week, I can't, I can't in good conscience support their efforts, which breaks my heart, literally, because uh, such an amazing organization started in such an amazing way to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ through compassion and love um, has, has turned into something uh, sadly uh, far more political than that, and uh, Salvation Army just recently released a, a, a whole course, I mean, it's 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 very long, um, and I read through the I read through it. Uh, it took me a while. On and, and it's just called Let's Talk About Racism, and basically, uh, in a nutshell, what it is 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 the promotion of a leftist secularist view of of race and the gospel that is contrary, in my opinion, to biblical truth. It is critical race theory and um, Marxist. Uh, ideology dressed up in Christian language, and it's not something I can support. I have made it clear to you guys my view on, on critical race theory and, how, and why I believe it is an attack and affront to the gospel and to, and to um, the image bearers of God, that God created us all in his own image, and pretty much they just, they just lay out this whole idea of um, race being a social construct and you know, white evangelicals need to apologize and repent of their racism, uh, it, 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 it breaks people up into classes of oppressor and oppressed based on um, their, their different classes. And, and it's, it's really an affront to the Bible, which tells us that God created us all in his own image, that we uh, are united under the blood of Jesus Christ, and that he is the solution to every answer. And it, it really troubles me that they have done this, uh, not because I think racism is acceptable. Uh, this is... This is this is not political for me at all, okay? Uh, I don't think the church should pander to any political ideology, right or left. I think that our, the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ is our baseline, it's our plumb line. And, and when I see an organization in the name of Jesus pandering to, catering to, and falling to ideology that is, that is coming from the first four sources in their document that they quote are from secularist uh, 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 college professors and lawyers that are, that are not godly in their thinking, they don't have a gospel-centered worldview, and they define race based on their secular worldview, and this is who they're going off of to present this. And, and so I think, uh, just to be clear, racism is a sin, it's, it's wrong, and it's, it's not racism, it's hatred. It's, it stems from the human heart and the human condition of pride and arrogance, and it should be repented of wherever it exists. That's not the issue here. Uh, the issue is what they have done in becoming, pandering to the political left. I, I don't know why you can assume all you want about that, but it's, it's wrong, and, um, and sadly, we cannot, uh, we cannot support that. So that's where, that's, that's where I stand on that, and I'd love to talk to you more in depth about it if you so desire to uh, after service. But um, again, pray. About these things. Uh, you can find these documents all online. They're pretty easy to find, and you can research it for yourself as well. So, that out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> let's get to the Word of God and the Scripture. This is where we stand uh, on the Bible, and I want to tell you, I, I, uh, because I really want us to switch focus now, this is one of the most powerful passage I th- passages, I think, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. Um, it's a perfect passage that introduces us to a Christmas season because it talks about the incarnation, Jesus Christ taking on flesh and blood. And so this morning, would you stand as we look to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18? If, if you would read the odd numbered verses, I will read the even numbered verses, and we will march through these four verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. He to the beast, and for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. Lord, as we look to your word today, we pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to our need for you and to the wonderful truth of this gospel, so simple yet so complex, and uh, such, everything that we need, the answer for our human condition, Lord, and peace with you. And so speak to our hearts now in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We've been, we're in part four, looking verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, on the theme of the author communicating to these Jewish believers who were being tempted to go back and fall back into the old covenant system of the law and of sacrifice. Why would you wanna do that when you found Jesus? Because Jesus is better, he's better. Uh, Number one, we saw that he has the better voice, that God once spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ, that everything we need to know about ourselves, about eternity, and about God is found when we look at the person of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus has a better title than the angels. Jesus is not another created being. He's not a demigod. He is, he's not uh, an angel, uh, uh, some heightened form of an angel that became a man. No, Jesus is none other than the Son, Same nature, same DNA, so to speak. Same characteristics. God in human flesh who's come down. He's not created, but he's creator. And then, of course, last week, Jesus is the better man. That what we could not accomplish in the weakness of our own flesh and our own sin, Jesus accomplished by taking on human flesh and coming in the likeness of man and becoming a little lower than the angels was crowned with glory and honor and ascended to heaven victoriously. And today we come to the message that Jesus has won the better victory. I almost called it Jesus brought the better Christmas because... um, what a better passage to start off our Christmas season than one that says Jesus took on flesh and blood to defeat the devil, to take away the fear of death, and to aid those who are living in this life. In fact, if I would sum up the message in one statement as we dig in deep to each verse, it would simply be this, that at the cross, Jesus won the ultimate victory over the devil and death, and now he freely extends that victory to those who battle fear and temptation. That's good news, amen? And so we jump right into four points. How did Jesus win the better victory? This morning, we're going to look at these four points. By number one, realizing that Jesus defeated the devil. Number two, that Jesus delivers the fearful. Number three, Jesus distributes mercy. And number four, Jesus diffuses temptation. As we jump right in, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, communicates to us that Jesus, number one, defeated the devil. Verse 14, again, look at it. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Here, the author introduces this concept of the devil, of death, and Jesus, and how they all... Correlate to one another and to the human experience. The devil here is communicated as the one who has the power of death. As we think of this process of, of communication, what the author is communicating that, that we are flesh and blood, right? We are all humans. Which means because of sin, we are all subject to death, every single one of us. And the devil holds that power over death. In what way? Well, follow my train of thought. The wages of sin is? Okay. And who is the originator of death? Death came through sin. Sin came through Adam. Adam sinned as a result of a temptation that came from who? So the originator of death is ultimately the devil. You can look back in the garden, uh, listen to what Jesus said in John eight forty four 44 of the devil. He says he was a murderer... From the beginning, well, how does he murder? How did he murder? And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, how did Satan murder at the very beginning with Adam and Eve? He planted a lie that was contrary to the truth of God. And once that lie was consumed, by a human being and acted upon by a human being. Death entered into the world because separation from God now had been complete because of rebellion and sin. And so before Christ, we could say that no person had the power to escape the consequences of Satan's lie that he planted in the garden. By nature, humankind became subject to Satan's power as slaves because no person from Adam on had the power to overcome sin and therefore escape death. You following me? So, so the author here states that Jesus had to come in the flesh. Why? Well, because you can't die if you're not human. And you can't conquer death unless you die. And so there had to be a man that would come... That Satan couldn't get to sin, that Satan had no authority or power of, that could willingly die, not as a result of his own sin, but for the sin of others, and conquer death forever to free human beings from being subject to Satan's power, which they're under. That's what he's communicating here. Spurgeon, I love how he communicates this idea of death. He says, I think death is the devil's masterpiece. With the solitary exception of hell, death is certainly the most satanic mischief that sin hath accomplished. But as I mentioned, there was one person the devil could never get to sin, one flesh and blood human being that though he tried in the wilderness, face to face to get to sin, he tempted, yet Jesus never sinned, but he still died. He didn't die as a result of his sin because he didn't have any. He died as a result of our sin. And Jesus, by coming under the power of death, without coming under the power of sin, was not subject to Satan's authority, but rather took the authority away from him. And that's what he communicates here. In Jesus' death and resurrection, Isaiah 25 verse 8 was fulfilled, which says, prophetically of Jesus, that he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tear from their faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. When Jesus said it is finished, he wasn't just talking about his life. He was talking about the power of Satan that he had over human beings through death, was then eradicated and completely abolished. First John chapter three verse eight tells us, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And we're told here that Jesus destroyed Satan's power through his own righteous death. Now, you might want to make note of that word destroyed because I can, I can see some people thinking already, wait, I don't think Satan seems that destroyed. The word destroyed here doesn't mean eradicate or to cause to no longer exist. Satan will, will always exist. In fact, at the very end, he will be cast into the lake of fire um, we're told, with the Antichrist, and he will forever be banished uh, from humanity and from the presence of the Lord. The word destroyed here means, listen, to render ineffective, to deprive one of power, influence, or force. You see, Satan will never die, but here's the, here's the truth of the matter that the, the author's communicating, that the power of Satan had through death no longer applies to the person who has trusted in Jesus Christ for their eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he, wrote, when, when he brought Lazarus up from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he will die, yet he shall live. That there is life now because of Jesus' ultimate victory. You see, Satan is still an active enemy, but here's an important thing to remember. Though he is an active enemy of the believer, he is also a defeated enemy whose remaining ammunition will be rendered ineffective against the spiritual armor of his rival, the Christian. I want you guys to say this with me. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Christian, Colossians chapter 2, Paul told us having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, at that moment that the world and maybe even the enemy thought was the defeat of the Son of God was actually the moment of his greatest victory. Because it was on that cross, and three days later when he rose again from the grave, that he made a spectacle of the power of Satan. And he said, I am making it possible through faith in me that the power of Satan will have no more control or hold over a human being. That is an incredible truth. As a Christian clothes themselves with Christ, when they're diligent to wear the armor of God, the Bible teaches us that nothing Satan employs against them can effectively succeed. It's true that the enemy might have an occasional victory by tempting us to obey our flesh, and we fall and we fail. But Satan will never again have the ultimate victory over death. The ultimate control over life and death. Now, of course, we need to respect the reality of Satan's craftiness. He's a powerful adversary. Peter tells us to be sober, to be vigilant, for the adversary our devil roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But at the same time, let's not give Satan more credit than he deserves. Satan is powerful, but Jesus is more powerful. Satan is crafty, but Jesus is wiser. Satan is a loser, Jesus is a winner, to put it plain, uh, plainly. We don't need to be afraid of the enemy. But you know what that means. Neither do we need to be afraid of his henchmen, death. Secondly, not only does he tell us that, that Jesus came to destroy the devil and his power and his hold over humanity. But number two, we're told that Jesus delivers the fearful. Look at verse 15. He continues, And to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That word release is the picture of prison doors being opened, shackles being loosed. Jesus came as a man so that he could die as a man, that he could raise again as a man to conquer death forever, as a man, perfectly man, perfectly God. But he did this so that all those who trust in him could be released from their fear of death. Reminds me of the guy who, man, he was having horrible headaches, and he tried everything, aspirin, Motrin, Tylenol, extra strength. Finally, he went to the doctor, and the doctor did x-rays, and they did a CT scan, and a couple of day, days later, they called him back in for the results. The doctor announced, I've got awful news, your condition, I'm afraid it's terminal. And the guy was shocked. He just, I can't believe it, what happened? And, and the doctor said, well, you know, there's, there's no denying the results, there's no doubt. And the man said, well, well, doc, how much longer do I have? And the doctor answered, 10. He said, what, well, 10? 10 years? 10 months? Well, 10 what? And the doctor looked at him and said, nine, eight, seven, six. It's been said that death is the great spoiler. You know, the birth, the birth of a of a child is such a joyous event. And none of us like to think of the reality that the child that is is born in the new life that comes out will one day. Lay, lay in a casket and be buried in the ground. You know, we, we, we all are overjoyed at the event of marriage, and we say those words, tell death to us part. Not wanting to think about the reality, that means that one of us might die and leave the other one lonely. You know, death is always in the back of every human's heart and mind. We're created that way. The Bible says God put an eternity in our hearts, and if every human is honest there is a fear of death that grips them. Whenever they consider, when they think of it, that the fear of the unknown, the fear of the finality of life is a very real part of the human experience. And for humans, the reality of death produces fear and self-preservation. And yet, listen to the, the power of this. The apostle here is telling us that it is the fear of death that actually limits... Prohibits the human being from experiencing the fullness of God's plan and purpose for their life. That the fear of death is actually something that hampers the human experience, not enhances it. It's interesting to me that Jesus here not, not only gave his life to take the power of death away from Satan, but he gave his life and conquered death to take the fear of death away from the Christian. That's one of the reasons he came. So that you and I could have confidence in our life and confidence in our death, realizing that death isn't the end. Christian, listen, if you are in Christ, death no longer means the cessation of life. Death no longer robs us of what really matters. Death no longer separates uh, us permanently, but only for a time. In Christ, death is not a punishment for sin. It is a graduation to greater blessing, a higher glory, and a deeper awareness of God's presence. Death is not something we must fear. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 tells us, For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. How much more in Christ Jesus does his life give us life? A promise of eternal life, a promise that we will reign and rule with him forever. And I love the picture here when he says to release those because it is a picture of a Roman prison. And you might imagine it like this. The prison cell, earth is like a prison. And the the cell that every human being is in is the fear of death. That's the prison cell. Okay, Every person walks around in it trying to find a way out through some way or another. The guard at the door of the fear of death is death itself, not letting anyone out. The warden of the prison is none other than the devil, and he has control over all the prisoners. And then one day, as everything's going pretty smoothly for the devil, another man shows up in the prison, but he's innocent. And everything everything the warden tries to do to get this guy to sin or fail or mess up, to get him locked in a prison cell fails. But then one day, he goes into a prison cell and chains himself up willingly. Three days later, he breaks his chains, he pushes open the prison door, and he walks out with a key to all the cells of the prison, rightfully having won them, having ownership over them. And he goes around and he starts opening every cell door and inviting people, come out of your prison cell, come into this freedom that I have won for you. Some people come, some people don't. The people who do, Satan, the warden, he goes around and he tries to convince them that that their safety was back in the prison cell, that their home was back in the prison cell. You just need to go back into the prison cell where you were comfortable and where you were safe. All the meanwhile lying to them, trying to get them from the freedom that they've now come to experience and enjoy. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus holds the keys over death He's won them by victoriously conquering death forever. And now Satan is trying to attempt to lie to people about going back into fear. I love Isaiah 42. Paints another beautiful prophetic picture of this, verse 13. The Lord will march forth like a mighty hero. You know, we love superhero movies these days. I love this language about Jesus. He marches into that prison Of a world like a mighty hero, and he will come out like a warrior full of fury, and he will shout his battle cry and crush all of his enemies. You know, fear is a powerful force, isn't it? The acronym for fear that I've always loved is false evidence appearing real. And it is one of the most powerful tools of Satan to hinder people from experiencing life in Christ. In May of 2020, God gave me this verse. When I saw the, and you saw the whole world reacting to COVID based in their fear of death. To me, the season of COVID exposed a lot of things. But it, it really exposed how afraid people are to die. And it caused a lot of people to do all sorts of things (laughs) to preserve their life. Now, I want to do say that life is precious. Agreed? Life is valuable. We should do everything to preserve and protect it in wisdom. We should not treat it foolishly or tempt God with our life. However, if the preservation of your life becomes a priority over everything else, my friend, you are not trusting the Lord. And I don't say that to be mean. And I don't say that as someone who, doesn't, who hasn't struggled with it. But what I'm saying is our priority as Christians is not to live out of the fear of preserving our own life, but out of faith in Jesus Christ. It's trust in Him that defines the decisions we should make, the things that we should do, whether it's going to the mission field or standing up for the truth or preaching the gospel, even at cost of our own self-preservation, if it means gathering to worship, if it means whatever it might mean, we don't retreat in fear. I think we are in a state where the world needs to see Christians who stand bold and confident in their risen Savior, who in the face of everyone going and hiding away in their little corners and in their little circles, we're still the ones out there showing love. We're still the ones out there serving others. We're still the ones out there continuing to share the gospel because our mentality as Christians is to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is not foolish. It simply means that we believe in the victory of the power of Christ. Jesus came to set the captives free. And there might be a word here that some of you need to hear today, because some of you are sitting still in prison cells that Jesus has opened, and you're afraid of the guards that Jesus has destroyed. And I want to boldly and confidently exhort you today, get up and walk out of that cell. Satan has convinced you it's impossible that you'll ever change. There's no hope for you. Guess what? I have an incredible truth to tell you. It's all a facade. It's all a lie. It's all a smokescreen. It's all intimidation and fear. It's all bark and no bite. You will overcome that addiction because Jesus overcame. You will overcome your fear because Jesus overcame. You will overcome the challenging obstacle in your path. Your marriage is not destined for failure. Your life is not worthless because Jesus already won. We need to believe that and receive that and accept it into our own lives. Jesus proclaimed his mission from the prophet Isaiah as he stood in the synagogue and read the scroll, that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And last time I checked, Jesus doesn't fail at a mission he sets out to do. And at the same time, Jesus, unlike anyone else, empathizes with the reality of our struggle in this life, which leads us to our third point in verse 17, that Jesus distributes mercy. He distributes mercy to those of us who are living here on this earth. Verse 17 says, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be, notice, a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth. I'm going to say this up front because... In a couple chapters, these two things become the center point that we're really going to study in depth. But here in in, an Idea, we deal with the two Ps of Jesus' death and resurrection. Priesthood and propitiation. Can you guys say those two words with me? Priesthood and propitiation. Basically, we see this when it comes to priesthood. He says that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Under the old covenant... The job of the high priest was to be uh, an intermediary, make intercession between God and man. The high priest would be the one to make, the priest would be the one to make the sacrifices, uh, to pray on behalf of the people to God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt, he would enter into the temple and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat for the atonement of sin. But not only for the sin of the people, also for his own sin. And that was a picture of the priestly duty. And so when he goes here, he says, Jesus had to become like us. Why? So that he could be a faithful and merciful high priest. Note those two words, faithful and merciful. In other words... The only high priest that could effectively make us right between, uh, between us and God is someone who is completely faithful to God and completely merciful to man. A human priest could be merciful to man, being a man, but could, could a human priest who's flawed and sinful be completely faithful to the righteousness of God? No. There's a failure there. So he couldn't be faithful to God and merciful to man. An angel might be able to be faithful to the things of God. But can an angel be merciful to man? No, why? He hasn't walked in his shoes. He hasn't become a man. He doesn't know the human experience. And so Jesus, as a 100% man, is merciful to man. And as 100% God, is faithful to God. In other words, Jesus fulfills all of the righteous requirements to be a faithful high priest to us that he empathizes with us. And then he says, why? To truly empathize with another person. I want you to think about this. How many of you have been blessed when you're going through something hard by another person who's gone through the same thing you have? No one. Okay thank you. Okay. I was like someone. Okay. I want to I want to make a statement here. We as human beings are all involuntary when it comes to empathy. In other words, we never ask for things bad to happen to us. But when they do, what happens to us? We become empathetic, truly empathetic for people who have gone through the same thing, right? You can, I can be sad for you, I can weep with you if you've gone through a tragedy, but it's a whole new level if I've gone through the same tragedy. There's a different connection there, right? But none of us ask, you know, if, if, if Joe, and I'm not talking about any specific Joe, okay, <laughs> if Joe loses his job and doesn't have a paycheck, how many of us go, I'm gonna quit my job and not get a paycheck so I can empathize with what Joe's going through. Some people might, in solidarity, uh, shave their head for their niece or nephew who's going through cancer and they're losing their hair and they want to they wanna empathize with them. That's great, praise God. But how many people say, I would like to get cancer and lose my hair so that I know exactly what Jimmy or Sally's going through. And yet, this is... A, this is on a much, uh, uh, eternally, I'm sorry, I can't put two words together this morning, Uh, a a much bigger scale. This is what Jesus did. He didn't look at us from heaven and say, oh, you poor things, like, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Jesus took on the human experience, and he said, Let me go through temptation. Let me walk with man. Let me suffer intense. Let let me be stabbed in the back by my friends. Let me be betrayed. Let me be rejected by the very people I came to save. Let me be lied about and slandered. Let me... Have a crown placed on my head of thorns. Let me be beaten and whipped. Let me be nailed to a cross. Let me be lifted high for all to see and spit on and mock and ridicule. Let me be laid in a grave. Let me go through everything, the human experience, so that I can empathize with them in their weakness. The Bible will later say that he was tempted in every point just as we are, yet without sin. And aren't we glad that he didn't sin? Because now we have a faithful high priest that we can go to who fully understands what it's like to walk through our struggle but has done what we can't do and he has won. And he can help us. The Bible says here that he did this so that he could be the propitiation. That's a big uh, theological word there, propitiation. But it's an interesting word. It, it, it literally implies a pardoning of sinners without compromising the justice of God. The word in the, uh, in the Septuagint, it comes from the Hebrew word kipporet. I'm not going to try to say it in Hebrew because I'll butcher it big time. Kipporet is the same word that describes or is used of the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. You see that top section there with the angels? Um, It was actually probably formed like this, with the angels like this and like this, forming actually a seat. And it's on that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God, the very glory of God, dwelt. And when the blood of the sacrifice was put on the mercy seat, The holiness of God and the mercy of God met, and the sin was absorbed through the sacrifice, and the mercy of God came. But through those animal sacrifices, it was only temporary. Through that human priest, it was only temporary. The beautiful thing here, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience who would be thinking about this imagery in their mind, he says, Jesus Christ has become our propitiation. Jesus is the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is a place where God's justice, perfect justice, and God's perfect mercy meet and the sacrifice that we can come to now freely and partake of. Incredible picture there. Which is why Hebrews 4.16 will tell us, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus didn't go through all he went through so that you could go through it alone. He has mercy that he wants to extend towards you and I. And I think that our final point really brings together the the extent of his mercy towards us, and that is Jesus diffuses temptation when we face temptation. Jesus diffuses temptation. Verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted... He is able to aid those who are tempted. One of the many benefits of Jesus' propitiation is that he now helps us through his mercy overcome the temptations that we face because he himself was hounded by the devil and tempted to sin. He knows the pull and he knows the deceit of Satan's lies. And therefore, he helps us. The word tempted there, when it says he was tempted, means to solicit one to sin. Satan is still out there to sell you a lie. He wants you to bite into the forbidden fruit. He's a good salesman. Um, He's a good liar. He's out there doing this. But when Satan sees the cross of Christ in front of a believer, it's almost like a sign, I think, to him. I saw this sign the other day. You know, uh, no no solicitor's... Uh, no soliciting, see dog for more details. And I kind of think like, yeah, when Satan comes, that's kind of the sign he sees at the cross, you know? No soliciting, (laughs) see God for more details. I know, it's horrible, you guys. Just just give me a break, come on. (laughs) But I, I need you to focus in just for a few minutes because this is one of the most important points, I think, that holds people in bondage to sin, and it's something I fell in. I think it's something we all kind of uh, misinterpret from time to time. Notice the important language here Jesus destroyed the work of the devil, Jesus delivered and eradicated the fear of death. But notice here it says, and he aids, he assists, he works in partnership with those who are tempted. In other words, God, Jesus has not yet eradicated temptation now don't hear me wrong he doesn't tempt anyone with evil the Bible is very clear about that but temptation still exists and your flesh which is prone to temptation and sin still exists and so as a result of this language he is, he is showing us here that we need to learn how to live a life that is dependent on the power of Jesus to help us overcome sin. For the believer, the devil, I know this is a big statement, I believe that the devil is not our most dangerous enemy. I think our most dangerous enemy is ourselves. For the believer, the devil made me do it is not an excuse that flies. The devil can't make you do anything. And I think many times we attribute things to spiritual warfare that though they might have a spiritual root outside of us, are really a warfare within us. It's a battle over the lusts and the desires of our flesh and our greed and our pride and our selfishness that we're battling with and we say, oh, I'm, I'm wrestling with the devil. Probably not. You're probably just wrestling with yourself. The devil is active the Bible's clear, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the spiritual forces and the rulers of the darkness of this age. Behind the ideologies out there, there's spiritual and satanic influence. There's no doubt about it. When, when, you're, when you're confronted with a temptation, Satan is most likely involved. When you're, uh, when you're in the midst of, 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 of prayer and, and there's intense intense. Uh, Warfare and prayer, sometimes that's a spiritual battle. There are very real spiritual battles that go on. But the reason I point this out is because sometimes what we need to get victory over sin is to stop blaming the devil and just repent of our sin. And to confess our need for Jesus. To confess our need that we, we need his help to overcome the lust of our flesh and the desires of our flesh and the problems of our mind and the way that we think. James chapter 1 tells us, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I want you to notice the devil is not mentioned in that passage at all. The temptation might come from external sources, but it takes root when it gets in us. And the evil that still exists in us starts to attach itself to those sins and to those temptations and the battle within us begins to rage. But here's the encouraging part that the author is trying to get at. When you do face temptation and when you do get the battle going on inside of you, your, 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 your victor, Jesus, is alongside of you to help you. One of the first verses I memorized as a kid was 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, where Paul writes to us, no temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you will be able to bear it. Did you catch that? I don't know if I'll, I don't know if I can I don't know if I can handle this temptation right now. I know that you can. Why? Because the Bible tells me that God wouldn't have allowed you to be tempted in that area and for that thing, if he did not also give you the strength and the road and the pathway to escape that temptation. Which is important principle to remember. Take a picture of it, write it down. Put it on your mirror, throw it in your car. Simply this, and I have to tell myself this all the time. Whatever Satan tempts me into, Jesus can lead me out of. Whatever Satan tempts you into, Jesus can lead you out of. Your temper, it's no match for Jesus. Your lust is no match for Jesus. Your selfishness, your pride, or your greed is no match for Jesus. Many times, though, the starting point is being honest with ourselves. That's always the hard part. We don't want to admit that we are as bad as we don't think we are. Did that make sense? Probably not. But we do. And temptation feels so strong because our minds aren't always in the right place. This is something you might be struggling with. Just listen. Maybe close your eyes even as I read these verses to you. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I think people run into trouble when, t- when faced with temptation because we tend to tell ourselves that the, t- that the temptation is actually stronger than Jesus, rather than telling ourselves that Jesus is stronger than, th- than the temptation. there might be some in here today who need to make things right, need to surrender some things at the foot of the cross, need to overcome some fears, or maybe you need to accept Jesus for the first time in your life as your high priest, as a propitiation for your sins. But this is a powerful set of verses that Jesus has defeated and destroyed the power of Satan by overcoming death. That he delivers those who in their entire lifetimes have been in bondage, in slavery, in prison because of the fear of death. That he distributes mercy as a faithful high priest to God to those who follow him. And that he diffuses temptation to those who call upon his name. And I'll close with a quote from John Brown in his commentary on Hebrews. He says, these truths... With which our ears are very familiar, but if our minds distinctly apprehend their meaning and their evidence, these truths would fill us with adoring wonder and gratitude towards Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your victory. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from the fear of death. That if there are any other things that are keeping us bound or prohibiting us from experiencing the fullness of your plan for our lives, we want to bring those things even now under the authority of you, Lord Jesus, to the cross where you died for our sins. Lord, I pray that we could be a people who are courageous, who are full of faith, who have a sincere love and hope and compassion for those who are lost. Lord, in a sense, you've distributed all of us keys to prison cells. That key is the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would see our mission as those who go forth in your name and in your power helping to unlock prison doors, that those within them might go free and experience life in Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with your joy as we approach this Christmas season and remember the fact that you partook of flesh and blood for us came as a baby, died as a man. May that holy moment, that holy reality be ever on our hearts and minds as we move closer and closer to celebrating your birth. We pray for a fresh anointing and empowerment of your Holy Spirit in our lives. That we would lead today not just business as usual, but with eyes to see what you're doing around us, with spiritual ears open to perceive the needs of those around us, their spiritual mind attuned to the leading of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would cause us to become effective in our community, even more so, as we stand for your truth in life. We love you, Lord. I pray that you would heal every heart in this room today. And I would pray, Lord, that you would deliver anyone who's who feels like they are caught up in bondage, they would come to you and experience your freedom in their life. We ask all these things in the mighty name above every name, the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.